why don't you turn there. Uh, you might remember, it's been a little while, but you might remember we've been looking at uh, one of the most controversial and in some ways difficult sections of this letter, this portion concerning women quietly receiving instruction uh, with entire submissiveness and not being allowed to teach or exercise authority over a, over a man. So why don't we read a little of the context here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and begin with verse 8. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You may be seated. Well, you might remember that I said that this section of scripture is hard to interpret and even harder to know how to implement. In our present culture, the whole idea of submissiveness in the Christian home or in the church is considered to be oppressive and outdated. But the fact is that if we throw out the word submission from the Christian teaching, we would have to throw out most of Christian doctrine. That's because submission is what the New Testament is all about, particularly the submission, the submission of Christ. He, be, he became the submissive, suffering servant in order that salvation might be brought to humanity. He submitted to all the humiliation brought upon him by evil men throughout his life, and he submitted to the death of the cross. He taught by word and by example that real greatness does not lie in positions of power or lording it over other people, but by taking the position of a servant and washing one another's feet. Basically, the Bible teaches both men and women that if you cannot accept the place of submission, you cannot be a follower of Christ. As Christians, we all have countless opportunities to practice submission, and women are not being mistreated when they are asked to voluntarily take a submissive attitude in the Christian assembly or in the Christian home. You note that I'm emphasizing, I hope you do, Christian, the Christian assembly and the Christian home or marriage. That's because it has been deplorable to look down through history at the way many men have misused and abused authority and power in ways that oppress and demean women. 
these teachings that we're looking at are for Christians because they're the only ones that know how to properly implement them. Sadly, even professing Christians have sometimes tried to justify their sinful attitudes and actions toward women by misapplying passages like the one we're looking at today. All such misapplications must be condemned as distortions of God's truth and his loving design for both men and women. As Christians, we should be saddened whenever we're made aware of injustice or discrimination against anyone. And Christians should be in the forefront of seeking to bring an end to attitudes and actions which would deny women their full dignity or in any way make them feel or be presented as inferior. I hope that as we study these verses today, we'll be able to see that although the Bible recognizes leadership responsibility for men, and we're talking about in the church and in the Christian family, what Paul is presenting is not negative toward women as it's often portrayed. These verses do not justify abuse of women in any way, However, they do teach a distinction and a difference in the roles of men and women, again, in the church and in the home, Christian home. Unfortunately, our culture today, in our culture today, we've been made to think, and it's taught often, that if there's any difference in roles between men and women, there must be a difference in value between men and women. But this is not what the Bible teaches. As we've pointed out previously, I think I've done this a number of times, the great doctrine of the Trinity illustrates how equality does not mean sameness and submission does not mean lesser worth. The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are equally God but have different roles. For instance, Jesus, the Son of God, submits to the Father and yet is totally equal to the Father. So I think we can carry that on over into what we're looking at here this morning. Wives who submit to their husbands are not worth less just because they are submissive. Historically, wherever Christianity has spread, the status of women has improved. And in general, those countries where women have been most exploited are those countries where the gospel has been least accepted. One glaring example of that in our present day, and it's been this way for centuries, is the status of women where Islam is a prevailing religion. Well, let's look then at these verses in 1 Timothy. Last time, we looked at Paul's theological justification for the position that he takes, uh, which he gives in verses 13 through 15, especially 13 and 14. He goes back to the account of Genesis, where we see that men and women are created equally in the likeness of God and share dominion over creation, God's creation and they are both commanded to rule over it. But we also see a divinely ordained 
ordering of leadership and submission, where Adam was created first and Eve was created later in order to be a complement and helper to him. So Paul goes back to Genesis for those things. From this, Paul then draws the principle of leadership and submission in which women are not to have the governing authority in the church or to be the ones who give authoritative biblical teaching in the Christian assembly. Because he goes back to Genesis for this, he's saying that these teachings are not based primarily on the culture of his day, but rather are transcultural. Though there was no doubt some reason or reasons that uh, in that particular setting there in Ephesus in the first century, which called forth the need for this exhortation that Paul gives here in 1 Timothy, the basic principle Paul puts forth applies to any culture. I think we should note at this point that there is disagreement amongst Bible-believing Christians as to whether these verses were primarily emphasizing the cultural view of that time as opposed to a transcultural view, which is what I've stated. If it wasn't for Paul going back to the original creation prior to the fall to justify his position, I think it could be possible to hold that his teachings were to a large extent cultural culturally based from that time, a culture that was very patriarchal. But Paul clearly looks back to creation for his understanding of leadership in the church, and although not in this section, he also, also in the Christian home. Those who hold to the possibility of women being pastors and elders believe that the idea of male headship and leadership came as a result of the fall. Now you have to listen carefully here, because I'm going to make a distinction. They're, they're saying that these role distinctions, especially leadership uh, and headship for the male, was a result of the fall, and therefore not a requirement for New Testament believers. Evangelical Christians who hold this position are called egalitarians. Maybe you'll hear a couple new terms here that you haven't heard before. Egalitarians, because they believe and stress the full equality of men and women, not only in terms of human dignity, but also in terms of all roles in society. For them, any subordination of women occurs as a result of the fall. They would stress that our roles as men and women in Christ should be determined by our giftedness, not by our gender. You all with me here? Okay. Talking about the egalitarian position. <clears throat> Although this position has become more popular lately, it's not at all new. For instance, most of the egalitarian arguments used today are similar to what Catherine Booth presented in the middle of the 19th century. She died in 1890, and she was living in a time period when women were not allowed to vote, 
They were not allowed to enter most of the colleges or universities at that time. This was over in England, but it was the same in the United States. Not allowed to enter the colleges and universities. They were barred from most professions. Um, the idea was they need to stay in the home and just do what's called uh, for them to do there in the home. It was not, they had no uh, right to own property. In Christian circles, mission boards refused to approve single women for missionary service, and, and particularly in what we're talking about here today, most uh, church situations did not allow women to speak in church gatherings. So that was a situation that uh, Catherine Booth and her husband William Booth were uh, living in at the time, and they started up a group called the Salvation Army. Now, the Salvation Army, to begin with, uh, was very evangelical. They were very much into taking the gospel to the down and outers. Uh, very evangelistic. And Catherine felt that she should be able to do that just as much as any man. She's been uh, entrusted with the gospel, and she felt like it was a false interpret interpretation of Paul's command about women keeping silent to not allow women to share the gospel with anyone, any anywhere. You cannot hit that little button there, well, it really goes crazy. I cannot get too energetic here. <laughs> the idea was, if women are gifted, they should be able to express their ministry gifts. She wrote a small booklet on the subject which was entitled Female Ministry. She based her arguments upon the absolute equality of men and women before God, and as egalitarians today do, she believed a woman's ministry should be determined by her gifts, not her gender. Here's a short quote from Catherine Booth. If the Word of God forbids female ministry, we would ask how it happens that so many of the, most of the most devoted handmaidens of the Lord have felt constrained by the Holy Ghost to exercise it. In other words, to go out and preach the gospel. There were a lot of women in the Salvation Army that went out into the streets and the coal mines and preached the gospel. She, she's saying if, if God's given us that burden and that gift, uh, how, how do you explain this? She says the Word and the Spirit cannot contradict each other. So, she would preach to large crowds of men and women, and many thousands of people were converted under her ministry. When her husband, William, was drafting his orders and regulations for the army, that's the Salvation Army, orders and regulations for the army, he included this statement, women shall have the right to an equal share with men in the work of publishing salvation. So that, she was an example before the term was around of the egalitarian position. The other evangelical position is the complementarian view. 
which says that men and women are equal in dignity and worth but have differing roles that complement, that's where the word comes from, complementarian, that complement and complete each other. Complementarians believe that there is an order of creation, there was an order of creation before the fall that had men in loving leadership. The abuses and distortions of God's original design for men and women came as a result of humanity's fall into sin. So the abuses came because of the fall, but not the basic principle of uh, male leadership and headship. The Christian's responsibility is to stand against all abuses of God's authority structure, but also maintains God order, God's order of creation as he designed it before the fall. Complementarians believe God's male leadership among God's people is what is best for both men and women who are equally made in the image of God. So that's kind of the two positions, but I do want to give uh, an example of the complementarian position. I used Catherine Booth as the egalitarian example. Let me use Elizabeth Elliot as an example of a woman who took the complementarian position. Again, this was actually before the word was popular uh, as far as being a designation of this position. Um, as I said in the last message, she was involved in missionary work with her husband, Jim Elliott, in Ecuador. Uh, he was martyred there in Ecuador in 1956. Prior to her husband's death, they had already learned the language of and made converts among one of the primitive jungle tribes there in Ecuador. When Jim and the four other missionaries were beginning to make contact with another tribe, the Aka Indians, who were known to be killers, uh, known to kill outsiders who tried to have any contact with them, he told Elizabeth, you've got to teach the believers if I don't come back. Well, that may not sound very revolutionary, but Jim Elliott, it was something somewhat amazing for Jim Elliott to say because his background was Plymouth Brethren, a group which was very strict about women teaching men. So what did she do after her husband was killed? She took the young male converts aside in this tribe and taught them privately, taught them the scriptures privately. But she insisted that they do the preaching when the new tribal church assembled on, on Sunday mornings. Now, she probably could have given a more polished and proper sermon. In fact, I, I'm sure she could have. She knew the scriptures better. She knew how to prepare a sermon better. She knew how to present things better. But she did not think that that would be best for the new church according to how she understood the scriptures in a complementarian view. She also recognized that she was in a unique situation. Later, when she and Rachel Saint, who was the wife of another one of the missionaries that was killed, Later, when they took the gospel to the very tribe that had killed their husbands, Elizabeth said this, quote, The door to the Aka tribe 
had slammed shut for those men and was, to our astonishment, opened up to two women. It didn't look to me like a woman's job. But God's categories are not always ours. I had to shuffle my categories many times during my eight years of missionary work. Later still, when she became well-known in Christian circles, she was invited to speak all around the world. Uh, But wherever she went, she would never speak to a Sunday morning congregation. She just felt that was not right for her to do. When she did speak at other times, she always emphasized that it was under the authority of the male uh, leadership of whatever group she was speaking to. And again, she was doing that in order to try to abide by her understanding of these verses that we're looking at this morning and, of course, some other related verses to that. Of course, there were groups that would not even consider to have her speak to any group that included men. So why am I going into all this? Well, to let you know that there are two uh, positions that Bible-believing Christians have taken, and it also lets you realize that there's quite a bit of variation on how Christians have understood Paul's teaching in this area. This teaching can be taken to many different extremes and has been taken to many different extremes. For instance, um, there are groups that will not sing hymns written by a woman. They say that's allowing a woman to teach. So, you might be asking yourself, where do we as a church stand in all this? As I said last time, I believe that Paul is teaching that godly men are to lead the church. So, definitely we would lean closer to the complementarian position. They are to have the governing authority over God's flock. They are to be the overseers of the church, which is what Paul deals with next in chapter 3. He goes right into that. Uh, after he's dealt with this subject that we're talking about now. I believe that the primary emphasis of these verses uh, has to do with this area of leadership and not exercising authority over a man. The part about women remaining quiet, or as he says in 1 Corinthians, keeping silent in the churches, must be understood in light of other things that the scriptures tell us about how the early church functioned. It's a certain type of quietness, and we we cannot make that as a blanket statement. If If you just take that verse and these verses by themselves, you will come up with a distorted understanding of Paul's overall teaching and the New Testament's overall teaching. Why is that? Well, we know that women were allowed to pray and prophesy in church gatherings in the New Testament. Paul tells us that. Now, he stipulated at that time that they could do that as long as they did so in a way that showed proper respect for God's authority structure. How was that? 
Well, in that culture, that had to do with wearing a head covering as a sign or a symbol of being under authority. It's interesting to note that this prophesying is said to mean involve things like edification, exhortation, and consolation of the church. You see that, and if you want to look at that, it's in 1 Corinthians 14.3. So when he said, when he allowed prophesying by women, he was saying that women could edify, exhort, and, and console the church. So that, again, you're not talking about total silence here. We also see that the early church, in the early church uh, assemblies, we're told that each one had a song, had a teaching, had a revelation, had a tongue, had an interpretation. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians for this. So my question is, when Paul says each one, was he only talking about men? I don't think so. Paul also told the Ephesian church that they should not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord. Again, was he just talking to the men in that? I don't think so. I think that we, back in the New Testament church, they didn't have songbooks like we do. These were spontaneous songs that were coming forth at the time. Uh, and they were written by the men and women of the church. Each one had a song, had a revelation, had a teaching, had a tongue, had an interpretation. You would have heard a lot of women's voices in the New Testament church. That's the point I'm trying to get across here. It wasn't just all men as, you get, as they gathered together uh, for worship. He told the Colossians, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. I'm emphasizing that. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your heart to God. Elsewhere, Paul emphasizes that each member of the body, that is, each member of the church, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each member, not just the men, each member of the church. And that every person's gift is important to the proper functioning of the body. To me, as you read through the New Testament, it's obvious that Paul highly valued the ministry of women and often commended their work in the gospel. Of the 28 people addressed by Paul in his letter to the Romans, some 10 of them are women. And a number of these 10 seem to have prominent ministries in the church. In fact, the letter itself was probably carried to Rome by a woman, Phoebe. Let's 
Let's turn back to Romans, the last chapter of Romans. Romans 16. Verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, which is uh, the word deacon. We'll talk about that later on, not today. Uh, Who is a servant of the church which is at Syncria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper to many and of myself as well. So here's a woman probably carrying the uh, letter of Romans that Paul highly commends to the church there. And then if we go on, in uh, chapter 3, or I mean in verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who for my life, for my life risked their own necks, to which not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their home. This Prisca is a shortened form of the name Priscilla. And she and her husband, Priscilla and Aquila, are mentioned five different times in the New Testament. And I don't know what significance to put to this, but three of those five times, her name is first, which was unusual in that culture. Together, we're told that they uh, were in charge of a number of home churches, not, not just the one mentioned here in Roma, Romans, but a number of other places they uh, were involved. In fact, in Ephesus, they were involved in uh, having a church meet in their home. And we're also told that together they taught this man, Apollos, who was said to be mighty in the scriptures, but they taught him the way of God more accurately, we're told, in Acts 18.26. So here you have a woman and her husband teaching doctrine to a man. Paul calls a number of women his fellow workers in the gospel. For example, you have a couple of ladies by the name of Yodia, and Sintiki, kind of strange names. I haven't heard anybody name their daughter Sintiki, but it'll happen, I'm sure. Um, let's let's turn to Philippians, uh, chapter four. And uh, I guess we'll just start at verse 2. I urge Euodia and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also 
and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here you have Paul putting these two women in the category of fellow workers in the gospel. All in all, 18 women are mentioned by Paul in, the, in his New Testament letters. So we can see that he valued highly the ministry of women, which you would not tend to think if you just read the verses we were dealing with this morning. That's why you have to keep the, the whole Bible in view when you read a, in a particular verse. Well, what I've tried to do in these three messages related to this section of Scripture is to give some overall biblical balance to these verses, which can easily be misunderstood and misapplied if taken in isolation. In closing, then, let me say I believe the Bible presents the general principle of male leadership in the church and in the Christian home. Men are to bear the primary responsibility for the spiritual leadership in these places. But while that is true, we also need to recognize that this general principle must be adapted in different cultures, different cultural settings, and in different time periods. If we get too rigid in the use of this general guideline, we will harm people. Uh, I think it's, I think it's uh, sad to think that people couldn't sing a Fanny Crosby hymn. But that's just, that's just a minor area compared to some applications that have been made. So if we get too rigid in using this basic guideline of uh, spiritual leadership from uh, the uh, males of the church, if we get too rigid in that, we'll harm people. But it's also true that if we get too loose in how to adapt this general rule, to changing cultural situations will harm people that way also. Um, like going along with the current feminist contention that men and women are virtually interchangeable. Um, so there should be no distinction between men and women in their roles. Uh, that's going to do harm. It's doing great harm. So what, what this boils down to then is that it will take real Holy Spirit discernment for Christians in different times and in different places to rightly understand and apply God's truth in this area of male leadership and this area of submission in the church and in the home. So I want to open it up for questions here. But before I do, I want to make one last point, and that is this. The Christian life in general and Christian leadership in particular is all about serving. The Christian life and Christian leadership is all about serving. Jesus, our example, did not come to be served but to serve. Lording it over others is not how authority works in God's kingdom. To seek power is to lose it. 
in God's kingdom. Loving servant leadership by godly men will never diminish a woman's sense of dignity or her sense of equality before God. If you're in a situation that does that, something's wrong. Godly leadership would not do that. So, uh, we'll see more of what's involved in godly leadership as we go into chapter 3 and look at the qualifications for overseers. Well, I'll stop there.